This is the second week, series looking at the Beatitudes found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. The Beatitudes are verses 3 through 12. We'll get to those in a minute. Um, page 802 in the Worship Center Bibles if you're new to the Bible. So last week, I provided an introduction and an understanding of the present reality of the kingdom of God. I'm really focusing in on this. This is so important for us to begin to see that the present reality of the kingdom of God in our lives, I want that to register in our heart and in our soul so we begin to to use that as a lens through which to read the rest of the Bible. And so we want to talk about the present reality of the kingdom of God, the significance of the Sermon on the Mount, and last week we looked at the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what I said about the kingdom of God, just to go back and review, because this is really, really important. When Jesus came the first time, he established the kingdom of God upon the earth. And when he comes again, he's going to consummate the kingdom of God. And you and I have the privilege and the responsibility of living in this in-between period of time. But what I want you to see, if if you don't already, is the present reality, our access to the, the present reality of the kingdom of God. It's, you could say that, that it's the idea that when Jesus came the first time, he established the kingdom of God, then what he did is he, he, he reaches into eternity, grabs a hold of eternity, pulls it into the future, and stakes it in the ground with the cross. So we have access to the presence and the power of God in a way we've never had access before. And most of us live our lives with, without, um, at least to this point, without a without a growing excitement, understanding of the presence and the power of God that we have access to. We kind of just go about our lives, try and do week to week, we're busy people, but to stop and realize, to stop and see what we have available to us. A few of us, um, maybe more than a few of us, were probably implicitly taught that the kingdom of God is out there that that's then, this is now. But what I want to say to you is, yeah, it's out there, but it's also here. Because of what Christ has done, it's also here now for us. So it's the inbreaking of heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is, the inbreaking of heaven here and now. The kingdom of God is the first fruits of the reconciliation and redemption of all things. That's why Jesus came. It's the first fruits of the reconciliation and the redemption of all things. It's more than that. The gospel is more than that, but that's the part that I'm, I'm wanting to emphasize as we lean into this series on the Beatitudes. I want to give you three, well, here's, here's another way to say it. Some theologians refer to it as we live in the already and the, and the not yet. That's a way to think of it. It's the already and the not yet. First fruits. Eternity has been brought into the present. So we now have access to the presence and power of God in a way that we never have before. And I want to give you three verses that kind of illustrate this for us. The first one is Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And here's what it says. To these, his disciples, 120 in the upper room, then he... um, Well, anyway, I'll just read it. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering, after the resurrection, 
by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's pretty heavy. So what is that saying? It's saying that he rose from the dead and he stuck around for 40 days. What did he do? He taught them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God must be a pretty big deal for Jesus to spend an extra 40 days before the ascension to remind them or teach them, instruct them. He didn't talk about church planting. He didn't talk about the church. He talked about the kingdom. And one of the issues of Matthew's gospel is that it it takes our focus off the church. We can be all about the church, but it's really not about the church. It's about the kingdom, the words and the works of Jesus. And if we give ourselves to kingdom life and kingdom ministry, the fruit of that will be the church. And so part of what we're doing here is to kind of refocus our attention on kingdom and away from church. Church is great. I love the church. We are the church, but it's the fruit, not the goal. The goal is the kingdom. What's another verse? Uh, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And some of you know the Greek word for power is dunamos. It's the same word we get the word dynamite from. And so when the Holy Spirit moves into our lives at conversion, we have access, we have dynamite power available to us in our lives. But like I was saying before, we don't, we don't often realize that. We don't make use of the kind of power that is, is available to us to live our lives. God wants to use you and do in you and through you what you can't do on your own. Last verse to, to illustrate this, John 14, 12, is Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. Now, Theologians try and do a lot of things with this passage uh, to tell us why we don't see the miracles and the healings and the deliverances that Jesus saw. But I want us to just look at this and read it for what it is. That Jesus said greater things than these will you do because I go to the Father. Because he sent the Holy Spirit to be among us, we have access to a presence and power that we've never really considered or dreamed of or thought was out there when it really is right here. And so I just want, I want this to come alive in our heart in a new way. I want this to register in our souls so there's a holy expectation for God to move in love and in power upon people, upon you and the people in your life, uh, family, friends, neighbors, uh, people at work, uh, that God wants to move on people in love and in power. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is not saying, oh God, come get us out of here and help us escape from it. That's not what that prayer is praying. That, that, That prayer is saying, I want your kingdom to come in a way that brings life and healing and love and tenderness. Lord, we ask for the inbreaking of your kingdom here and now to break the power of addiction in this person's life. That's what we're praying. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Come in power and do what we can't do. Lord, we ask for the inbreaking of your kingdom to heal this marriage or to heal this person. The inbreaking of God's kingdom life and power. Lord, we ask for the inbreaking of your kingdom to grant a refreshed passion and vision for Community Covenant Church. 
We want God to tell us what his plans are for the future and do that. So last week, I mentioned that Jesus was the most revolutionary person who ever lived. We sometimes lose sight of that. And, and he came to initiate a revolution. And we see Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that we would identify as the kingdom manifesto of Jesus. And the Beatitudes tell us how to enter into the kingdom. Now, if we could see that graphic again, yeah. So this is so important, and for a lot of you, this is the first time you've ever seen it this way. Uh, but I think it's, it's one of the best ways to get a good picture of the Beatitudes. There's an emptying, and then there's a filling. The way into the kingdom of God, and, and there's, there's, there's theological distinctions, there's people out there, there's, there's the idea that, that our will can choose what we want to offer God, and the other theological distinction is we can't choose. Dead people can't choose, so God has to do everything. So wherever you are, either side of that, most of us are somewhere in the middle, but the, 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 the thing that I want you to see, and the word, the operative word for this series, and the Beatitudes, and how to get in to the kingdom, how to start, is surrender. That's the operative word. Whether we choose it or whether God surfaces in our life and in our heart, I don't care. How, I don't care. But surrender. For us to position ourselves and to say, I want to surrender. I want to want what you want for my life. That's, that's how we get in. God initiates the poor in spirit. God initiates the mourning. God initiates the meekness. And then as we, as we are emptied, we become hungry and thirsty for God. And I want us to go there. Let's go there. Let's become hungry and thirsty for God. And then there's a, fee, a filling in our lives. We've received God's mercy. We begin to give God's mercy. And there's, there's a purity that comes as we receive God's mercy. He, he, he heals and cleanses our heart. And then there's peacemaking capacity. Instead of peacekeepers, we become peacemakers. And then we get persecuted. That's awesome. That's just awesome. And then... And then uh, we come back around and start again. You'll spend the rest of your life cycling through the Beatitudes. It's a spiritual formation process. And we, we, we empty, fill, empty, fill, and come back around. We go deeper and deeper in God. So I hope you see that. And finally, by way of review, poor in spirit is a desperateness of soul that is weary of living in its own strength and longs for God's mercy and grace to come and refresh the soul. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. By the way, uh, I do pretty extensive notes, and they're going to be up on the website near the sermon, so you can download uh, the notes and take a look if you'd like. Uh, it's quicker than if you'd listen to it again. You can read it more quickly. So in a word again, what's the word? Surrender. For our church, the word is opportunity. In regards to this series and what, what, the, what God is saying to us right now, I believe, is surrender. Surrender afresh to God and receive his kingdom. It's part of the gospel. I want us to, to view reading scripture through the lens of an understanding that the kingdom is a present reality in our lives. So that brings us to the second beatitude. So I'd like to read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll pray and we'll take a look at verse 4. Here's what I'd like you to see. 
speaking of the already and not yet, the first beatitude is written in present tense. And the last beatitude is written in present tense. All the beatitudes in between are written in future tense. So what's going on there? I think we ought to, when we read our Bibles, we ought to look for these kinds of distinctions when we read. So what is the author trying to tell us when the first beatitude is, is present tense, the last one is present, and the ones in between are future? I think that's the author saying to us that I, I see the first and the last beatitudes as anchors which anchor the Beatitudes, anchors the kingdom into our present reality. So it's speaking of this already not yet tension that we're being asked to live with and have access to the life and the presence and the power and the majesty of God. So take a look at that or listen for that as, as I read this. Okay, uh, Matthew 5, verse one, verses 1 through 12. One day... He saw the crowds gathering. Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down. The rabbis sat down when they taught in those times. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who, are, who hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about that. Be very glad. Easier said than done. I get it. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So today we'll look at the second beatitude. From verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The title of the sermon is um, The Privilege of True Repentance. And so what I'm going to try and do in this sermon is expand the scope of the sermon a little bit to address the concept of true repentance and the fact that it's a privilege. And, And we'll let that lead us into a time of of celebrating the Lord's Supper. So to mourn, to mourn. What does it mean to mourn? It means to grieve or to wail. And the word is, it describes both the feeling and the activity of mourning, to grieve and to wail. There are 10 different words for the word mourn in the New Testament. This particular one is by far the most intense. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience in your life where you just, you might be so, um, so hurt, re- repentant, uh, you're so frustrated with who you are that you find yourself on your face or on your knees and you're just crying out to God saying, God, I, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. And, and I hope we've all had 
those moments. I've had a few of those. Maybe I'd ha I've had several of those where I get to the end of myself and then have to be reminded that it's time to go to God. So I hope that's happened to you. And, and this word is intense. The feeling and even, even the crying out to God, bewailing, uh, uh, to wail and mourn over the condition of our souls or over the condition of the world around us. We'll get to that. And so to mourn means to know a godly and transforming sorrow for sin, for evil, injustice, and perversion. And I think it takes three forms. First of all, for the sin and the injustice, perversion in our own lives. We're broken people. And to mourn over our selfishness and how we turn inward and focus on our needs over other people's needs. And then to mourn and repent on behalf of the church, Big C Church. We've done some really awful things in the name of Jesus. And we need to own it. We need to own it. And then what I call the world system. This can be confusing. The, the Greek word is cosmos. And sometimes it can be confusing. God doesn't hate the world. He loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does God hate? God hates the world system. God hates the, the corruption, the injustice, the greed, the lust, the idolatry of the world system. That's what he hates. But he loves, loves, loves people. So there's a mourning and a repentance, not only for the sin in our lives, but the, the sin that the church has committed and also for the corrupt world system. There's a mourning over all that if we let it touch our hearts. We begin, to mourn is to begin to see things from God's perspective. That's one of the easiest ways I know how to say it, to begin to see things the way that God sees things. Let me share a prayer with you. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. And I would say, don't pray this prayer unless you really mean it. Here's the prayer. God, as much as I'm able to stand, I want to see like you see, and I want to feel like you feel. Again, don't pray that unless you mean it. As much as I'm able to stand, I want to see what you see when you look at this world, and I want to feel what you feel. Maybe the brokenheartedness over the condition of our world. And I don't want you to live your life there, and I don't think the Bible is saying that we have to live our lives in that space. But I think on a regular basis, we go there, and we let him fill our hearts and our soul with the grief and the mourning of where we are, whether it's your own life, the church, and then the, world, the corrupt world system that we live in. The word comfort. In the original language, is the same word we get the word Holy Spirit from. In John 14, 6, for instance, it describes the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And the Greek word for that would be paraclete. You, many of you have probably heard that word. That's the word, the Greek word for our word Holy Spirit. And so to comfort is when we get comforted in our mourning. It's, it's counterintuitive. We don't think that we'll get to joy through mourning. 
but we do. I can't remember if I told you this story. I'll try and be quick. My son broke up with a girlfriend. It's not the one he married, but one of his first girlfriends. They broke up. And he, he walked through the room, told Linda and I that, that uh, they broke up. He went in his room. So we got up and went into his room. Uh, when somebody is grieving like that, you don't say anything, right? We've all made that mistake. Some pious platitude. Just be quiet. Just sit there. Here's what he said. He said, we broke up. He said, I know I need to feel the grief in order to get past the grief. And in my head, I'm saying, who are you? How, how did you know that? Because uh, I had it in here, but I, I, I hadn't had it in here. And that's kind of like mourning, too. We, God doesn't take us around mourning. He doesn't take us around grief. He takes us through it. With his power and his presence and his life, he wants to take us through that to joy. That's where we're headed, to joy. But we go through it, not around it. Okay. Somebody has said that God came to comfort the afflicted, right? But then that person went on to say, he also came to afflict the comfortable. Have you ever heard that saying? Came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we've all gotten to a place in our lives where we've been comfortable, and God comes by his grace to afflict us. If one of my mentors said, he fixes a fix to fix us. Some of you get it, yeah. So verse 4, it says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Here's, here's my paraphrase of that. We will know exalted joy and true happiness. That's that blessed, blessed are. That's exalted joy and true happiness. And we will be comforted by the Holy Spirit as we learn to mourn and repent over sin promptly and thoroughly. That's how we get to joy, to mourn. Poor in spirit, to mourn. Don't live there. We don't, we're not called to live, but to go there regularly to present yourself to the Lord and mourn over your own sin, mourn over the sins of the church and the sin in our culture. Acts uh, 3.19, Peter's second sermon, he says basically the same thing. He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When we repent, God sends the comforter to refresh us. I want to talk, this is where I, I, I expand this a little bit and talk about uh, the privilege of true repentance. I found it particularly helpful over the years to distinguish between relentance and repentance. They're different. Relentance, I don't think, is a word, but it will be today. Relent is a word, but the difference between relentance and repentance. Relentance is the despair of our wounded pride. It's being sorry that we got caught, right? Our kids aren't always repentant, they're relentant, right? Uh, so are we. Uh, to feel badly over sin is one thing. It's quite another thing to repent. So what is repentance? Maybe 25, 28 years ago, I came across a book, my wife and I, Linda, uh, and we have never seen, or I've, I can't speak for her, I've never seen a better definition or description of repentance than what we found in this book. This book is called The Wounded Heart by a, a Christian psychologist and author named Dan Allender. If sexual abuse has been in your past, in the last 28 years, I have not read a book as good as this one on that. 
And here's where this description that comes in parts of true repentance is. True repentance is an about-face movement from denial and rebellion to truth and surrender. Repentance involves the response of humble hunger, that's our participation, bold movement, and wild celebration when faced with the reality of our fallen state and the grace of God. Repentance is a shift in perspective as to where real life is found. If you're like me, you look for life in all the wrong places sometimes, and this it shifts us back to real life. And then finally, repentance is melting into the warm arms of God, received when it would be so understandable to be spurned. Best description of true repentance that I've come across. If you've got something better, I'd love to see it. That's true repentance. And if you're like me, repentance tends to be the position that we take when we've tried everything else. Why is that the last thing we try and not the first thing we do? If you're like me, you might be like the captain of uh, the ship in the midst of a storm. And he prays and he says, God, you, you get me out of this one and I won't bother you till the next one. Right? That's like our, our prayer life, right? You get me out of this one, I won't bother you till the next one. So we tend to really, we pray well when we're in deep weeds. And the rest of the time, we're kind of just moving on our own. But true repentance is a great privilege to turn to God quickly, to mourn over our sinful condition, and to confess our sins promptly to God. This helps with conflict resolution too. For you to own your stuff, first and foremost, it helps you engage in conflict resolution. As an example of prompt repentance, I want us to consider Paul's words at the end of Romans 7. It would be Romans 7, 21 through the first verse of um, Romans 8. Let me set the context for you. Paul wrote Romans toward the end of his ministry. And so he's already this kind of happening, father in the faith, uh, church planner guy. And he's talking about how he's still caught in sin. It actually confuses a lot of theologians and commentators because there's this, there's this thought that at the end of his life, he should be further along than he is, as we'll read in a second. And some of you have read this and you know. And then another thing that we need to know is Romans chapter 8 is about life and the power of the Spirit. So here's one of the great questions of the Christian life. How do we get from the end of Romans 7 into Romans 8? How do we get from being stuck in our sin to, to moving into life in the power of the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? Let me just read this for you. You could turn there if you want. It won't be up on the screen. So this is what Paul said towards the end of his ministry. He says, I find the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. He said, I want to do good. That's the way you are too. I'm like that. I want to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. At first you think, well, he's in denial. 
Uh, but let's read on. 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And then he moves into Romans 8, a very familiar verse to many of us, most of us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, this is one of the great questions of the Christian life. How do we get from the end of Romans 7, trapped in sin, into Romans 8? And you can see why theologians and commentators were a little, I wish he was further along. I wish we could actually get it together. But you know what? We don't. We don't get it together, this side of heaven. So how do we get into Romans 8? I admit to you that I struggled with this for the better part of a decade. I couldn't see how you get from the end of Romans 7 into Romans 8. Again, I thought, I thought he was in denial here. You're separating parts of you and blaming it on other things, and then you just kind of move into Romans. How, how do you do that? How do you just land in Romans 8? I struggled, and then one day I saw it. it took a while. Hope it doesn't take you as long. Maybe you're already there. He starts with confession, doesn't he? And there's a, there's a mourning there, if, you, if we can read into it. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? And then look what he does. He goes to the gospel. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He goes back to the gospel. He takes shelter in the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is not about what we do to please or appease God. A lot of us grew up in that context. Keep the rules. God will bless you. That's not it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do or don't do. The gospel is about what Christ has already done. And so God, uh, Paul goes back and takes refuge in the gospel. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the grace of God pours into his life and first of all does in him and then through him what he cannot do on his own. And that's how you and I get from the end of Romans 7, stuck in our sin, go to the gospel, confess your sin, go to the gospel. When we surrender, the grace of God comes and does in us and through us what we simply cannot do on our own. If that registers in your soul, it'll change everything. It'll change everything. And now I want to read um, a quote. This, might even, this quote might even make some of you mad. So I've been here long enough where if I do that, you'll forgive me. Um, this quote is not for the faint of heart. It's from a book called Revival, Their Laws and Leaders, written in 1906 or 1909 by a guy named James Burns. And so I, let me read this to you and, and, and let, this, let this touch your heart. He's asking the question, do, do we want revival? Do, do we really want revival? And this is how he answers it. He says, to the church, a revival means humiliation, a bitter knowledge of unworthiness, and an open, humiliating confession of sin on the part of her pastors and people. 
It is not the easy and glorious thing many think it to be, who imagine it filled the pews and reinstated the church in power and authority. It comes to scorch before it heals. It comes to convict people of their unfaithful witness for their selfish living, for their neglect of the cross, to call them to a daily renunciation and to a deep and daily consecration. That is why revival has ever been unpopular with large numbers within the church, because it says nothing to them of power or of ease or of success. It accuses them of sin. It tells them they are dead. It calls them to awake and to renounce the world system and to follow Christ. Some of you are thinking, I didn't sign up for that. But that's how we get there. That's how we get there. That's how we go there. True revival is not this happy, clappy, or prosperity-driven Christianity, is it? I think we know better than that. Some have even described parts of the contemporary church today as a rock concert with a TED Talk. And that is not revival either. I wouldn't even call that church. But a church, when we, you and I grapple with the real issues, we grapple with the real issues about us, about the larger church, about the world system, and we let that break our heart. Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. That's when we begin to see the kind of change. That's when you begin to see the people that God has placed in your life in a whole different way. To enter into the kingdom of God, as the Beatitudes are instructing us, there's an emptying and then there's a filling in our lives. It's actually, as I mentioned before, the unlikely route to a profound and residential joy. That's where we're headed. The emptying begins with surrender, operative words, surrender, acknowledging that left to ourselves, we don't have the resources to become the people that God's called us to be. We just need to own it. And then as God prompts us, don't live there, but as God prompts you to weep and to mourn over sin, your own sin, yes, the sin of the church, yes, and the sin of this corrupted system that we all live in. 